the terminal wing of the hospital may seem like an unlikely place for active evangelism. But that's where the last minute ministry was born. The ministry began when a friend of Pastor Chuck Ken asked him to visit his dying 92-year-old great-grandfather in the hospital. The elderly man, Elwin, was agnostic. Chuck met with him and asked if he could share one of Jesus' stories. He told the story of the vineyard owner who hired people to work in the last hour. Elwin was also in the 11th hour and that day prayed to accept Christ. A week later, Pastor Chuck conducted Elwin's funeral. 100 family members and friends heard the gospel at the service. When Chuck's daughters pointed out that there were others on the terminal floor that needed to hear the gospel, Chuck got special permission from the hospital to visit. He went room to room asking each person if he could pray with him or her and then share the story of the 11th hour. In one month, he visited 15 people, eight of whom accepted Christ. During one of those visits, Chuck was called to minister to a comatose man who had only a few hours to live. The man was unable to speak or open his eyes. Instead, Chuck led him through the prayer of salvation by having him squeeze his hand one phrase at a time. Two hours later, the patient died. Commenting on the ministry, Pastor Chuck says, We started it off not intending for it to be ongoing, but the church got excited. It took off amazingly. It's an easy ministry to see progress because these people are getting ready to die. He added, people on the terminal floor are a lot more realistic about eternity. Turn with me now to Revelation chapter 7 to see the outreach God himself extends to those on the terminal floor in the tribulation. Now as you're turning to uh, Revelation chapter 7, how many of you can remember the theme song, the Yes, Gilligan's Island? One of the stanzas goes this way. The mate was a mighty sailing man. The skipper brave and sure. Five passengers set sail that day for a three-hour tour. A three-hour tour. If you will, we are now going to the third part of a three-part tour. Revelation 1.19 gives us the breakdown to three time zones, past, present, and future. The rapture has occurred. The tribulation has begun. That's the 70th week of Daniel that we read about in Daniel 9.24 through 20. Seven. Uh, so far, six seals. There are three waves of judgment, if you will. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. With the fourth seal alone, there was one-fourth of the earth's population killed. Uh, then with the sixth seal uh, that we just saw back in chapter 6, 12 through 17, it rearranged the geography of the earth. Therefore, the question is then asked in chapter 6, in verse 17, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? 
chapter 7 answers this question by showing us the salvation, the supernatural salvation of 144,000 Jews. These are the ones who will be able to stand. Now, let me go ahead and read to you Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. And just one other comment before I read this. This section of Scripture is parenthetical. We had just studied the sixth seal back in chapter 6, but we won't get to the seventh seal until chapter 8. So there is an insert here, if you will. There is a new vision given, not that time progressed forward, but a new vision, and I'll explain that as we dive into the text in just a moment. So Revelation chapter 7, let me read to you verses 1 through 8. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Join me in prayer before we look at the text together. Gracious Father, we thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ. The unveiling that has not only showed us the past, the resurrected and glorified Christ, and the present to John, those seven churches, but now the future. May our hearts be stirred to evangelism as we recognize that your heart is for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Stir us, Lord, by your spirit, the spirit of truth, who guides us into all truth. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the question. Who leads these 144,000 Jews to Christ? And then the second question, when does it occur? So let's look at two Old Testament prophecies to start to answer those questions. Uh, turn with me to the last book of the Old Testament in our English Bible. Uh, that would be the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. And we're going to take a look at two 
prophecies. The first one in chapter 3, and then the second over into chapter 4. In chapter 3, uh, let me read to you verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. My messenger is not named here, but will prepare the way. And notice the word before, before me. Need to draw your attention to the preposition, the Hebrew preposition, lifne before it means in the presence of the literal idea is in the face of and i want to show you how this preposition is used because it's critical for the point i want to make now you're in malachi just go back to your left to the book of zechariah zechariah we're going to look at the use of this preposition lifne zechariah chapter 3 we have Joshua. This is not the Joshua who was the assistant to Moses, but this is the high priest. And the Lord is cleansing the priesthood so that they can enter the temple that was destroyed back in 586 and rebuilt. And we begin in verse 1 of Zechariah chapter 3. Again, want to draw to your attention the preposition lifne, here translated before. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing where? Before the angel of the Lord. Where is he positioned? Before, in the face of, in the presence of the angel of the Lord. Now down to 3.3. 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing where? Before, again, in the presence, in the face of the angel. Verse 4. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood where? Before him, in the presence of. You'll, you'll see where we're moving in just a few moments here, so stay with me. Now down to verse 8, still in Zechariah 3. Hear, O Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who sit before, in the presence of, in the face of, here, you. I want to point out that the prophecy of Malachi chapter 3 Verse 1 is fulfilled by John the Baptist. And you might ask, how do I know that? And the answer, the Bible tells us so. Matthew chapter 11, please. Would you turn there? Uh, Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. Therefore, we have a lot of fulfilled prophecies shown to us. Matthew chapter 11, down in verse 7 to begin. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John. This is John the Baptist. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written. Now notice here the quote from Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger before your face 
who will prepare your way before you. John the Baptist fulfills the prophecy of Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, why he comes in the face or in the presence, if you will, just before the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see the proximity there. Now come back with me again to Malachi, but this time spring forward over to Malachi chapter 4. Chapter 4. Now unlike chapter 3 and verse 1, Malachi chapter 4 in verse 5 gives us a name. That didn't happen back in chapter 3. We learn from the New Testament, Matthew 11, that it was John the Baptist who fulfilled that prophecy of Malachi 3.1. But now with me, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet. Notice our preposition, lifne, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. This time we have someone named Elijah. It is not uncharacteristic of the scripture to name a specific person that will fulfill prophecy even centuries before that person is born let me give you a couple examples we have josiah and when you study first kings chapter 13 and verse 2 he is named and what is so fascinating is that he is named 300 years before he is born the scripture has that ability and to name specifically who that person will be another example would be cyrus he was the persian king in isaiah 44 28 and 45 in verse 1 he is named 150 years before the time he is born now here in malachi 4 5 observe the timing of the prediction Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet, specifically Elijah, when? Before, this is critical everybody, before, in the face of, in the presence of the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That is a reference to the tribulation. So when does this person named Elijah appear? In the face, in the presence of the tribulation. Why this is so very important is because when you study this passage, John the Baptist does not fulfill Malachi 4, 5, and 6. The person to appear named Elijah comes where? In the presence, in the face of the tribulation period. Very important for us to understand this. And it makes me sad. So many Bible scholars immediately attribute Malachi 4, 5, and 6 to John the Baptist. And I'll address that as we move on. Here are two key questions for you. Two key questions. Did John the Baptist come in the face of the day of the Lord? No. Okay. When did he come? Before Christ first coming i think that's critical second question 
Did John fulfill Malachi 4, 5, and 6 by turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers? And the answer is ultimately no. John was rejected as Jesus was rejected and killed. Now, it is true. Luke 1.17, speaking of John the Baptist, he comes in the power and the spirit of Elijah. There will be similarities there, but he did not do two things. You know, he's not named, number one, in Malachi 4, 5, and 6, if you will, John the Baptist. It's Elijah who was mentioned. And also the timing with the tribulation, and I think that is critical. And we see here as well, that the ministry of Elijah is to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. This is what Jesus said about John's ministry in Matthew 21, 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. See, he didn't fulfill Malachi 4, 5, and 6. That's John the Baptist. Uh, he did not turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, children to the fathers, as predicted here. And so some folks go, oh, well, we have to go to Revelation 11. There's two unnamed witnesses. One of them will be Elijah. <laughs> okay, well, I'd like to point out to you, you got a different time frame. In Revelation 11, as we will see down further in our study, happens about the midpoint of the trip. To tribulation. And by the way, even those two witnesses are not named, and both of them have characteristics like Moses and Elijah, not just one of them. And uh, can I ask you honestly, uh, would it be fair for Elijah, who transcended to heaven, all of a sudden to be brought back to earth and to be killed? Uh, that just doesn't seem like that would be a good thing. Um, also, just to point out a little further, even with those two witnesses in Revelation 11, the people didn't receive them. Rather, they killed them. So imagine this scenario. Based upon Malachi 4, 5, and 6, if you take the scripture literally, and I do, Elijah comes in the face, in the presence of the tribulation. And what does he do? I think he comes back, and I can imagine in some glorified form. And he is the one who leads these 144,000 Jewish males to Jesus Christ, fulfilling Malachi 4, 5, and 6. All right, that's how I perceive this to take place. Now, with that said, come with me and we'll, we'll look at the text together. The bottom line is that 144,000 Jews will be saved. I just believe it's a fulfillment of Scripture. Key to understand this, again, this is a parenthetical insert. We had the sixth seal back in chapter six. We don't get the seventh seal until the next chapter over in chapter eight. So we have the words after these things, right? Metatauta, but what do we have this time? I saw. It's a verb of perception. In other words, we do not have chronological progression or time moving forward, but a new vision. I want you to see here that we have the verb of perception. Not chronological progression, but rather a new vision. What is it that John sees? Four angels standing where? At the four corners of the earth. 
These four angels are about to do something that impacts the entire earth. Where they positioned at the corners of the earth. Similar terminology given in Revelation 20 in verse 8. And it shows, if you will, from the farthest parts of the earth. So it's showing the entire earth will be impacted eventually by what is to transpire. And what are they doing? They're holding the four winds of the earth. Literal winds? Or do the winds represent something in this case? Well, would you turn back to the book of Jeremiah with me, please? Jeremiah chapter 49. And I'd like to show you a passage where the winds are representative of judgment. And I think that's what the winds here represent as well. Jeremiah chapter 49. Coming down with me, please, to verse 34. Jeremiah 49, down to verse 34. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet against Elam in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the foremost of their might. Against Elam, I will bring the four, what? Winds, specifically four winds. Now, notice the rest of the passage and what is going to happen to Elam, divine judgment. From the four quarters of heaven, interesting, and scatter them toward all those winds. There shall be no nations where the outcast of Elam will not go. So in other words, they are going to be judged and they are going to be scattered. So as we are in Revelation chapter 7, you have four angels. Where are they standing? Positioned at the four corners of the earth and they're holding back judgment. And notice that the judgment is specifically mentioned with the four winds that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Well, we have seen clearly already how the earth has been impacted by the various seal judgments and will be impacted with the trumpet and in bowl judgments as well. But for now, there is a restraining that is going on. Verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east. Another here is not from heteros, another of a different kind. This is from alas, another of the same kind. This is a fifth angel because he is described as from the same kind. And where does he derive from the east? Literally it says from the Greek, from the rising of the sun. Now let's think about where John's at. He's on the Isle of Patmos. Israel would be in the direction of east from John, and perhaps that is where the 144,000 Jews are who are sealed by the Lord. And we have now another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And we got to take a little time and consider the implications of a seal. Uh, I'd like to point out to you as you're turning with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that one of the ideas involved with the sealing is that of ownership. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 
Look at verses 20 through 22, and I'll point out the aspect here of ownership. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you, but in whom? In Christ. To whom do we belong? We belong to God because we are in Christ. And he has anointed us, and the one who's done this is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. For us in the church age, just a down payment, that what the Lord has started, he will complete. That's the concept here. So, number one, we see an implication of the ceiling is that of ownership. Authentication is the second one I'd like you to see. When you are sealed, it shows that you are the real deal. The real deal. In John chapter 6, in verse 27, it says, because God the Father has set his seal on him, referring to Jesus. It was clear to the people. Remember when Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night? And he says, no one can do these things unless he's of God. It was evident that Jesus was authentic. It was also a protection, the seal was, to final salvation. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, it says, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That is, the moment you put your faith in Christ, the spirit of the living God came to live within you. God's mark of ownership and authenticity was on your life. You're the real deal. And guess what? You're going to be sealed until the day of redemption. That's Ephesians 4.30. Grieve not the spirit of God by whom you are sealed until the day of redemption when Christ comes back for us. There is something I'd like to point out to you, though, and this is a very important concept and uh, oftentimes misunderstood, is that the seal doesn't ensure physical protection throughout the entire tribulation. Uh, turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. We're introduced to the Antichrist and then to his assistant, the false prophet. Verse 15, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. This is what the false prophet does. There is life given to the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be what? Killed. So you have a power source here. And there's going to be an idol that will be created, that will be placed into the future temple in Israel that'll come to life. And it will speak, but what's the command to go out and to kill the saints? Uh, as we get to Revelation 14, we will see that the 144,000 that have the ministry of evangelism will be martyred. So the seal, although showing the aspects I'd already mentioned, do not protect physically these 144,000 for the duration of the tribulation. You might ask the question as well, is the, visible, is the seal visible? And the answer is, it doesn't have to be. In 2 Timothy 2.19, it says, the solid foundation of God stands sure. Having this 
seal. The Lord knows those that are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord or Christ depart from iniquity. The Lord knows who's sealed, and he's ultimately the one who puts the seal upon 144,000 as he has you and me. Now, coming back to Revelation chapter 7, the text continues in the second half of verse 2, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. The fifth angel has authority over the other four angels. And what does he say? Verse three, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. The trumpet judgments, remember the seven seals, then seven trumpets, are held off until we, the angels, see all five of them do the sealing. And then as you transition with me down to verses four through eight, there are 144,000 Jews who are sealed. Uh, I want to point something out to you, and, and I trust you will marvel at this as I've marveled. Can any Jewish person tell you today from which tribe they derive? The answer is no. Because in A.D. 70, when the Romans came in and obliterated Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, and the records, the genealogical records, showing which tribe people came from were destroyed. Wow, gone. But who knows? God knows. Uh, today, it's amazing, you know, you can have a test taken to see about your ancestry, but there's no test that can be taken to show you which particular tribe you would come from if you were Jewish. So keep that in mind. Amazing here what God does. And who's listed first among the 144,000? Which tribe? Judah. Now, when you study the scripture, Judah's not the oldest child, but from Judah came the Messiah. Genesis 49.10, the scepter shall not depart from Shiloh. And it goes on there to make the prediction that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. Revelation 5.5 gives New Testament verification of that. So it's interesting that Judah is placed first perhaps because Jesus came from that tribe um, the number 12 is always given although you don't have the same tribes always listed uh, Levi is mentioned as a tribe here though not usually uh, Dan that is usually listed as a tribe is omitted in something because of apostasy uh, in their heritage but nonetheless you have 12 tribes 144,000 supernaturally saved can you feel the heart of God Think about it. When the rapture occurs, all the saved people go to be with the Lord. So who's down here that's saved? Answer, no one. So what does God do because he has a heart for all people to be saved? I believe he sends Elijah at the beginning of the tribulation. And there he leads these 144,000 Jewish evangelists, all male, Christ and it's going to be their mission to go throughout the world and proclaim Christ 
And what is so exciting as we get to our next section of Scripture, the second part of Revelation 7, we see this innumerable multitude. In other words, the 144,000 lead many to Christ. Is that your heart? Here's today's main point. Pursue God's passion and evangelize the lost. I'll say that again. Pursue God's passion and evangelize the lost. Remember, it's Jesus. And we learn in Luke 19 and verse 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The story goes that a young man applied for a job as an usher in a theater at the mall. The manager asked him, what would you do in case a fire breaks out? The young guy answered, don't worry about me. I'd get out okay. Isn't that how we respond sometimes? What would you do if Jesus comes back tomorrow? Oh, don't worry about me. I'd be okay. But we are ushers. We are called to lead people to safety, out of the fire, the fires of hell, to the person of Jesus Christ. God has always had a heart for evangelism. That has never changed. And it will remain. It will remain. Turn with me and I want to take you on a, just a quick tour concerning the heart of God. And you want to be asking yourself at this point, is that my heart? Do I desire all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? In Genesis chapter 6, things are bad the thoughts, the intents of all the people were wicked. So what do we see here? Verse 5 of Genesis 6. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Violence reigned. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. This is what we call an anthropopathism. Easy for you to say, right, Pastor? A human emotion attributed to God. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry, right? Another anthropopathism. I am sorry that I have made them. I love the word but here in verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man. See, he knew the Lord. Perfect. He was, he was a mature man, given to integrity in his generations. And here's what you got to understand. Noah walked with God when seemingly no one else did. So what did God do? For 120 years, as Noah was building the ark, he preached to the people. Because back in Genesis 6-3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive. The idea is judge, convict with man forever. For he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Does that mean that men would only live to be 120 years old? No. It meant that for 120 years... As Noah was building the ark, he would be preaching the gospel through his servant, his servant Noah. 
extraordinary. Noah is called a preacher of righteousness in 2 Peter 2, 5. How sad today. So many Christians, they're keeping up with the world issues and they're more caught up in the political system than winning souls. Did Noah go and get involved with government? Not saying you shouldn't be involved with government. If God calls you to government, be a Christian in government. But let me tell you something, the way you change how people live and how they vote is by them being born again so that they can have the mind of Christ. Noah does this, and I'd I like to point out to you, he had another contemporary by the name of Enoch. Remember Genesis 5, 24, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. What was Enoch doing? We learned from the book of Jude that he was prophesying during this time. So we had two proclaiming the word of the Lord to a faithless generation, but thankfully, Noah's family observed his life and followed him and came to know the true God. Unlike Lot, who went back to get family members and they just thought he was joking about the destruction of Sodom. Moses is another example of someone that stands out. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, picking it up in verse 1, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb, and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim, see what he was doing? I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. Moses is proclaiming. You can call preaching. He's telling people who the Lord is. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. The God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. And then he points out they have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish. A perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? What's he trying to do? He's proclaiming to even the sinners who the true God is. And then we had Elijah and Elisha. In the midst of an ungodly Israel, they proclaim truth. And then, after the 400 silent years, here comes John the Baptist. Luke 3, 7, and 8. Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Are you seeing a consistent theme? The great men of God proclaim the word of the Lord to a wicked world and generation. And this was the plan of Jesus Christ. Prayed all night. The only time in the New Testament we are told of an all-night prayer meeting. It's Jesus praying before he chooses the 12. From the 12, he picks three, Peter, James, and John, and spends extra time with them, although he's calling the 12 to himself that they might be with him and then proclaim the word. Jesus completes his ministry. He said, I've got to go away, guys. Remember that in John 16? It's to your advantage so that I can send you the Spirit. 
And that's exactly what Jesus did. He ascended to the right hand of God and he sat down. And he dispatched the Spirit of God because they were to wait because not many days from now you'll be baptized with the Spirit of God. And this is what we learn about in Acts chapter 2. But in Acts 1.8, Jesus told them, you're going to be witnesses to me. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost part of the earth. Yes, we are called like Ezekiel to preach to dead bones. Ezekiel was obedient to prophesy to those dead bones. In Ezekiel 37, we saw them come to life. We live in a corrupt world. People separated from God explains the world in which we live. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, writes the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. But God in his mercy stepped in and saved your soul. How? By divine intervention. He used someone to put a Bible in that hotel room that you read. He put the gospel in someone's heart to come and proclaim to you. And now the baton is handled, handed to you that you need to go and do likewise. So today, here's the main thought. Pursue God's passion and evangelize the lost. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for revealing your heart to us. That in the midst of the wrath of God being poured out on the earth, we learn about your mercy. We learn about your grace. We learn about your desire for the lost to be found. I pray that we would align our heart with your heart. That we, Father, would start to live like the Son of Man did as he was on the earth to seek and to save that which is lost. Give us a burden for souls. Help us not to get focused upon the ungodliness in the world around us, but rather, Father, proclaim to the lost the truth of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which saves those that are dead. Thank you, Father, for our privilege. Help us to be faithful to our calling. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.